Ezekiel chapter 34, and we'll begin reading in verse 11 and move down to 16 and then skip down to 20 and go through 24. Ezekiel 34, starting with verse 11 there. It's good to be back with you this morning. I went to be with the saints of God uh, Sunday, so in faith at Faith Methodist and at the Georgia Dome. Uh, in chapter thirty-four, here in this prophecy of Ezekiel, remember he's actually in Babylon when he makes his prophecies, unlike the other prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, he's actually in captivity. And so here's what he says this morning, starting in verse 11 here of chapter 34. says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in a good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Skip down to 20. (coughs) Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank You for Your Word. Your Word is powerful for salvation. So may we enter into the salvation of these words that are offered here in Ezekiel this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Jesus Christ is King. He always has been, He is now, and He always will be King. And this is what we celebrate today on this last Sunday of the church year is Christ is King. His kingdom is not something that's just off in the future, but instead it's here and now. This is why Jesus and John both preached the same message, John the Baptist. That is, repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is yet to come. Because He is King now, but He's veiled in heaven and will reveal His kingship at the end of time. But let's start with sorry Ezekiel here before we come back to the idea of Jesus' kingship. Isaiah fascinates me on multiple levels. Sorry, Ezekiel fascinates me. Isaiah does too. He's called the prince of the prophets. But Ezekiel, different things happen to him. And he fascinates me on many levels. Uh, one of them being that he is 30 years old when he starts his ministry. Much like Jesus is. And I just turned 30, so this resonates with me. Most world, By the way, most religious leaders... Mahavira, Gautama, the Buddha, um, they all start their visions or prophecies at 30. It's a really interesting time, apparently. So I'm still expecting a vision to happen in the next, what, six months I have left before I turn 31. But nonetheless, uh, in the meantime, I'll just keep preaching and waiting. But it's interesting how Ezekiel starts his book. He starts out very specifically, if you want to look at it, in chapter 1, in the 30th year, in the 4th month, the 5th day of the month. This is his birthday. As soon as he turns 30, he's in exile. Now, just to give you some background on Ezekiel, he had trained all of his conscious life to become a priest. This was obviously a prestigious thing. Not all were called to be priests. Not all could be priests. And he trains all of his life to be a priest. To go and make the sacrifices. To be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And when you would have started, your priesthood would have been at the age of 30. So on the day when he could have performed his first acts as a priest, he finds himself in Babylon, a pagan nation run by Nebuchadnezzar. The interesting thing here is, it's dramatic for Ezekiel, and that is, because he's in a foreign land, he'll never now be able to perform priestly duties, ever. He's unclean. And no one that is unclean can go into the Holy of Holies. Not only this. You would think somebody who's trained their whole life in a professional manner as he would have would be very well-spoken, very mannered, which is exactly what you expect and what you get most of the time with Ezekiel, except for the fact that he realizes the the drasticness of this situation. He, really, he realizes the gravity 
of what is going on here. They've been ripped from their land in this first deportation, if you will. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and basically because Jehoiakim decides to work with the Babylonians, he doesn't destroy the city at first. Instead, he takes the best of the best out, Ezekiel being one of the best of the best, along with Daniel, by the way, and his three friends. So the best of the best gets taken, the cream of the crop, the straight A's, the valedictorians, you know, the ones that go to the Ivy League schools. These get taken away first, and Ezekiel's among them. But Ezekiel, once he realizes what's going on, once he sees where the situation is going through these visions that God gives to him, he becomes very um, very frank with people. That's the only way I know to say it. There comes a time to be proper. You know, there's times where you're supposed to be proper about what you say, but there are times apparently where there needs to be a reality check. And sometimes you have to shock people into this reality check. And here's the way Ezekiel does it is, number one, by object lessons, but also by his language that he uses. I'll run through the first one. At the beginning of the book, you kind of get the feeling, man, this guy's kind of a a weirdo. I mean, he wasn't looked at as some kind of professional fellow. Uh, The first thing he's told to do is take a brick and draw a map of Jerusalem on this brick. And then he's told to lay siege to the brick. Boom! Starts beating up the brick. Shooting it. You know, he's doing whatever it is they used to do. Knifing it. You know, throwing a grenade on it. Whatever. Um, He starts laying siege to the brick and people are like, is he okay? Is he alright? You know, he's over here kicking the brick and doing this. And he's trying to destroy it. And I said, Ezekiel, what's, why are you doing this? And he says, because this is what the Lord will do to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Now they've already heard from Jeremiah, who is also prophesying at the same time, but he's in Jerusalem itself still. They've already heard from him that destruction is coming. That's what he's known for, actually. Oh, he's the prophet of doom. That's all we ever hear is burn, turn or burn you know, from him. But Ezekiel is with the exiles already. But the mentality there, not in Jerusalem, but over here is, hey, look, you know, yeah, we've been taken away, but God's going to restore us here in a couple hours, a couple of days. I mean, it's not going to be a long stay here. And Ezekiel says, oh, yeah, it's going to be long. Because they're saying, hey, we haven't lost Jerusalem still, the city of God, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the kingship fully. And Ezekiel says, oh, yes, you will. And then he's told to lie on his side for 390 days. So a little over a year, he's told to lie on his left side. So every day, they walk by and they're like, what a weirdo. You know, there he is just lying there all day long, lying there. And they say, again, what are you doing? He says, well, I have to lie on my side for all the sins of Israel for 390 days. And then he lies on his right side for 40 days for all the sins of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, taken last. Remember, the northern kingdom was taken first by the Assyrians, and they were never seen again. Those tribes were totally lost. They were gone. When you went into exile, you didn't come back. Uh, No one ever had come back from exile until 
the Jews until the southern kingdom, those two and a half other tribes. The next thing he's told to do is to shave his head and his beard, because back then, to be manly meant you grew a beard, which I have a lot of trouble with. (laughs) I would have not been considered a very manly guy. I would have hoped I would have not been stuck in the kitchen, but nonetheless, I would not have been able to grow a beard, much of a beard except for on my neck, which the Amish people do often. So anyway, um, maybe I would have made it anyhow. Uh, Just a weird beard, you know. (laughs) He's told to shave all this up, which would have really been embarrassing for him. This was, this was something women did with shave. If you read ancient texts, men didn't shave. That's a womanly thing to do. You didn't shave anything. Uh, you know, hair equaled manhood. And so the more hair you had, the more manly you were in the ancient Near East. Now, not so much in Egypt, but uh, in the Hittites and the, in particular here Jerusalem. He sort of shave it all off, and then he makes three different piles with his hair. All right, so here he is in the middle of the city again, and people are going, "What is wrong with this guy?" You know, and he makes three different piles. <laughs> One pile he burns with fire; it melts away his hair, which stinks. And you know, if you've ever accidentally burned your hair, it stinks. Um, he burns one pile of hair. The other one, he pulls out his sword and just starts. Starts hacking it to pieces, going nuts on it. And on the third, he throws it up to the wind and it blows away. And they say, Okay, Ezekiel, what are you trying to tell us? And he says, Well, I'm trying to tell you that not many days from now, in Jerusalem, it's going to be burned to the ground. In Jerusalem, your relatives will be killed by the sword and in Jerusalem they'll also be exiled never to come back again Ezekiel acts out his message and it's a message to us we must act out the gospel I'm not saying we have to do these weird types of things but maybe the world will look at you as weird Are you still going to do what God says to do in order to act out the gospel of Jesus Christ? The apostles, almost all of them, as far as we know, were martyred for their faith. In their own bodies, they acted out what Jesus had done, and that was to give His life for us. And in His language, Ezekiel also is very brash. He calls them whores. Those who follow after idols. He says, you're whoring around on God. You've not only prostituted yourself, but you've actually prostituted yourself in spite of your husband. In other words, not just for money. You actually pay to be prostituted. And for it. On purpose, as a slap in the face to God. And this is what he says of his... And so, you get a guy... Oh, man. You know, do we even use those kind of terms in church? Not only that, he calls these idols turds in the Hebrew. It kind of uh, softens it here in the English. But he actually calls these idols... He says, you found a bunch of turds. This is what you're doing. You're worshiping crap. 
I mean, that's our way of saying it, will be crap. Now, that's, that's brash. I understand. It's, it's, we we kind of laugh at it. It's okay. You know? But Ezekiel is a professional guy, and yet he's using very blatant, shocking language. Why? Because the time is shocking. There's a lot of bad stuff that we get into, isn't it? On television, on the internet, there's a lot of our life that is wasted away on what? Nothing. Dung. And then Ezekiel comes to this point in his book, in chapter 34, where we've read from this morning, and where he says, basically in the first part of this chapter, he says, look, the shepherds of Israel have not protected my sheep. The Lord speaking, of course. Instead, the weak ones they have optimized on, they've taken from. The sick ones they have not healed. The injured ones they have not bound up. And the ones who strayed away they have not brought back. They have done the opposite of what a shepherd should have done. So, because of that, the Lord is going to bring judgment on these shepherds of Israel. Instead of feeding the sheep, they feed themselves and become fat. That's another thing. You even pick up his brash language in 34 when he says, the fat ones... I'm going to destroy them. And the picture here is you've got a bunch of skinny sheep that don't get to eat and the fat ones are over here taking everything, eating everything up. In 17 verses 17 through 19, the picture is of this, that when these fat ones eat, they actually trod over with their feet on other good grass that they can't eat because they're too full. But they're not going to... Leave it for anybody else. And the good water that they drink from, they end up walking through and muddying it. So it's a picture of you have more than you need and yet you keep it for yourself and just throw away the remains. I don't know a better picture of America than that. Of my life than that. Where I have more than I need and yet I want more at the demise of somebody else who doesn't even have enough. Jesus echoes these words in the Matthew text that Christopher read by saying He will be the one to judge between the sheep and the goats. And Ezekiel says the same thing. You would have thought that Jesus read Ezekiel, which I think is exactly what the point is here. He did. So did David, by the way. You could tell <clears throat> about the green pastures. This is, this is echoing King David. You see, this shepherd image goes hand in hand with the kingship of Jesus Christ. He's not just a king like what we think of a king. Or like what the early church even thought of as a king. His disciples figured that he would be a king that would rule over the Romans. I mean, what does it mean to be a king unless you're ruling over 
nations. But that's not his kingship. He is a servant shepherd king. This shepherd, he says, will seek out the lost. And it's the very opposite of what Israel was called to do. Israel was called to be shepherds to the people, and they did not. And we, as the church, are also called to shepherd. It's not just my job. Pastor comes from a shepherd image as well. But Protestants in particular, (laughs) which you are, believe in the priesthood of all believers. Which means that every single one of us is a priest, is a shepherd, is a pastor to somebody. And I think that's a biblical image here. And the question I think that Jesus would ask us this morning is, have you sought out the lost? Have you sought out those who are totally lost and have no group, have no fellowship, have no community that they are a part of? Are you scattering the sheep of God through your actions? through your talking, through your sin? Are you scattering the people of God? What is it that you produce in the church? Disunity or unity? The shepherds of Israel scattered the sheep. Hit them and they would scatter. Do our words hit people? Do our actions strike people and scatter people? Or do they bring people together in the church? And, I think He would ask us, as He asked the shepherds of Israel, do you muddy the water for people in your life? If things are clear, do you come along and muddy them on purpose so that they can't be used anymore? There's a variety of ways of doing that. People do it about love all the time. Oh, love? No such thing as real love. That's just in the fairy tales, in the fantasies of life. We muddy things. We muddy reality. (laughs) When um, When I was at the Saints game last week, this guy was in the bathroom and I said, I can't tell that you're an Atlanta fan because he was all painted up and everything. You know, I was joking around with him and he's like, oh yeah, man. He said, he said but I got to tell you, man, after that uh, pass to uh, Colston, he said, uh, I almost cheered because Colston's on my fantasy team. And it just struck me, just a little simple thing like that. We skew, we gray, we muddy reality. I mean, this dude's a Falcons fan, and yet he almost rooted for the Saints. Why? Because on a fantasy team, on a team that doesn't really exist, he wants to win there. I'm just saying, as an example, we do that a lot in our fa- Some people, I've seen people cry over shows and movies and not cry at funerals. It's always interesting to me to watch people when they come visit the dead. See them chuckling or laughing. And you know, it's, it's okay to do that at some point. But just how they take it is very odd. It's like we know how to do it on t- TV. 
But in real life, we have no clue how to grieve, how to extend condolences to somebody, how to speak something real into somebody's life. We live most of our time in a fantasy world, in a fantasy life, on a virtual world. And I think that's muddying the water if we don't ever know how to speak to people. I think this is a disservice of text messages personally. I know some people are against Facebook, but I'm against text messages. Texting is too impersonal. To hear somebody's voice, to look into somebody's eyes, much more powerful than to read something on a digital screen. I just think we've, we've muddied the water in our time. I think generations will look back and say, man, what do those people do with their life? I mean... I was watching this show, and uh, it's almost like all they ever did was smoke on this show. And we, we look back and do that, but people are going to look back one day, and we're going to see us on our phones and be like, is that all they ever did? Play on their phone all day? And Jesus, I think, would ask us, do you steal from my sheep? This is not your money. This is my money. And a tenth, at least a tenth, goes to my house. <laughs> it's all His, as Job says, remember? Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I came into the world naked, I'm going to leave that way. It's all I'm going to have in the end. You see, there's two ditches that I find that are easy to fall into as we walk this path of the Christian life. And neither one of them are good. Neither one of them are the better evil even. They're both evil. And Jesus teaches against both. And the whole Scripture teaches against both. The first is this. Faith that doesn't act. So people who have a faith that's up here that never acts in their body. That never comes out in their pocketbook. Or in an extension of a handshake. Or in walking across the room and encouraging someone. Or as Jesus says, going and visiting the sick. That's something simple that anybody can do. Making a phone call to somebody who's going through a tough time. Jesus said that when you do it to the least of these, then you've done it for us. So that when we do things like the Larkins family, we're actually being obedient directly to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25 of what Christopher read this morning. Or when we go visit people in prison. Or when we feed and clothe people. We've done it to the least of these we've done to God. Jesus never allows us to get away with some kind of mental faith. He's always poking and prodding at that understanding of that ditch not to fall into. Don't think that you can have it up here and not work it out in your body. Which is why in the Lord's Prayer we pray, Lord forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. In other words, you won't be forgiven. You will not be forgiven if you don't forgive. That's point blank, guys. There is no way around it. There's no loophole. There's no tax cut. There's nothing in there. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. Again, it, it can't be, oh yeah, I forgive that person up here. No. Must be acted out. They're going to know you by your love for one another. Not by your 
mental assertion. Not by your verbal agreement with Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, we should love everybody. We should love our neighbor. No, but by your actions. So the first ditch is a faith that never acts in your body. And the second ditch is the turnaround of that. And it's acts without faith. One, the first one I mainly find in Israel as the example. And the second one I mainly find with the Pharisees. And this is why Jesus is so strong with them. He often calls them snakes. And we often translate vipers, but you know, brood of vipers. What he's saying, you bunch of snakes. That's what you are. Bunch of snakes lying in wait to strike when the opportunity happens. As if you've done something. To show somebody up. You're looking for every opportunity to show somebody up. <laughs> this is acting, doing right things without a true faith or trust in Jesus Christ. Both of these ditches are bad. And both of these we have to walk in the middle of having a true faith that is true because it's acted out in our body. We play mental games. We all do. Thinking better of ourselves than we ought to. Something that Paul warns against. Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought. Jesus warns against it as well by saying, those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. It doesn't mean we need to try to be last or try to be bad or try to be sinful. That's not the point. The point is don't think you're better than other people. You think you're further in line than they are. You think you've worked harder than they do. I think I've worked harder. You know, I, I often identify more with the, with the son who stayed behind with his dad than the prodigal son who went out drinking and whoring around. And he comes back and says, well, what do I get? I've been sitting here working the whole time and I haven't gotten a ribeye. And now we kill the fatted calf? Throw the ribeyes on the table for what? This punk who's took all our money? We think we've worked the hardest. We like grace when it applies to us, but not when it applies to other people. We want justice instead. And Jesus comes along, Ezekiel comes along and says, that is not being a shepherd. You focus on what you're doing, and I'll pay you what is right. My grace. But don't begrudge my generosity when I want to give it to somebody who's only worked 30 minutes. Referring to Jesus' parable in chapter 20 of Matthew. What is the solution of walking this line between these two ditches? It's Jesus Christ Himself. I love how in Ezekiel He says, I, I Myself, three times referring to Him, Pointing to Him who, at the end He tells you, the servant who is like David. Prince of all. And He puts His seal, I am the Lord, I have spoken. Behold, I, I Myself will judge. I, I Myself will search. 
And who is He searching for? Not those who are already fat. Not those who are already laid up. Not those who are already satisfied and filled up with life. But instead those who are on the verge of knowing that they have no life on their own. Those who are starving to death for reality. That's who He's going to seek. and say. This is what Jesus actually comes saying, remember? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's quoting Ezekiel. The king sets up a type of kingdom that is not for those who are privileged. Not for those who already have it all. Not for those who are already satisfied with this life. Which is why we always live in this tension between being satisfied in life, not wanting more, and still needing Jesus Christ. It's always luring and tempting us. The world is. We can't be too satisfied here. And if our life is hunky-dory and satisfied, we may want to check ourselves just to make sure. One day He'll bring them back. Bind up the injured. Do we know we're sick? Do we know we're hurt? Do we know we've been deeply cut by this world? Do we feel this pain? Or do we act like it hasn't happened? The reality is it has happened. The reality is I can't trust myself even at my best times. I can't trust myself. And those who do trust their self will never see the kingdom of God. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, depart from me, you bad people. Are you bunch of sinners? Are you people who never did what I told you to do, but instead, I never knew you? Because when you know God, you know this good shepherd. This good shepherd of the sheep who is for you, for your provision, for your protection. And it's only... His person that saves us. It is actually the person of Jesus Christ by which we're saved. We're not saved by prayer. We're not saved by something I do. I'm saved by His person. This is what the incarnation means. This is what we're going to celebrate for the next four Sundays as we move toward Christmas Day. Christ's Mass where He offers His body to us in the bread and in the wine. This is God's servant. We feed off of Christ and not off of this world. Those who feed off the world, He says exactly, I will feed them in verse 16. Justice. To avert that justice, to avert that day of the Lord, to avert hell itself, eternal, as Christopher's reading said, eternal punishment. The way is Jesus Christ, His person, His self. I, I myself, will come for you. And He does. That's the beauty of Advent. It's the beauty of this last day where we claim, even in the midst of turmoil in our world, of world leaders all over the place that think of themselves as important, 
We say the most important king, the most important president, the most important CEO sits in heaven at the Father's right hand in the place of authority and He's veiled not to try to hide Himself except by His grace. If He reveals Himself, it's over. And no one has time to decide any longer. The reason He's waiting is because of grace. And we must be as the church hard at work as shepherds of the sheep. Gathering those who are lost. Finding those who have strayed off. And healing those, binding up those who have been injured among us. Christ is King. He always has been. He is and always will be. And we, our only response this morning is to come under and submit to His kingship. (coughs) He's the Good Shepherd. We're just under-shepherds of the Great Shepherd. But we will be held accountable for what we do with what has been given to us. And it's a sobering thought. So this morning, submit to the King. This shepherd king who is spoken of here in 34 of Ezekiel. Wouldn't it be fascinating to listen to a prophet that many years ago this morning and still hear that same spirit calling to your heart this morning? And would your response not be that of the Israelites, but instead be that of Christ and and say to yourself, say to God, Thy will be done in my life. This morning, I asked Rachel to come and just play for a moment as we respond to God.